Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Matthew chapter 2, and if you will stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning, we're going to take a look at a very familiar story, hopefully from a new angle for you that will give you some glimpse of how we respond to this newborn king. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it reads like this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, but out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it stood, or till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. God, this morning may you... Add to the reading of your word the truth of this word, and may you make very little of me and very much of you. All this we ask in the name of your Son, who is the Word, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Matthew, like all the gospel writers, has a theme to his particular book. One day we'll take an opportunity to take an overview of the New Testament and go book by book maybe. But there's a theme for each of these, these Gospels here in this New Testament. Each of the writers had a particular theme. If you happen to look at Mark, Mark wrote the story of Jesus, this Gospel, from the viewpoint of a suffering servant. He looked at him as a suffering servant. When you move to Luke, Luke wrote the story of Jesus as being the Son of Man. Whenever you look at John, John wrote the story of, of Jesus as the Son of God. So in the last two, you have the Son of Man and the Son of God. And in the second one, you have the suffering servant. In the very first one, you have this sovereign king, or as we would say, the king of kings. Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew looking at Jesus as the king of kings. How do we know that? It's because in the very first chapter, he starts the genealogy of Jesus saying that this genealogy is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He starts this genealogy from the viewpoint of the king, King David. And it's kind of interesting that he would start that, that way, but it also lends us to understand why we see the wise men, as we have come to know them, the king of kings, or these king wise men, or whatever we call them, the three kings. That's why their story happens to be included in Matthew and none of the others. He's making this 
this point about this king of kings. And he includes them in this particular story. And see, Matthew writes about the visit of these wise men. And he gives us a look at what I want to phrase or call the response to a newborn king. See, we're past Christmas now, the day that we celebrate. But each day we live in the presence of Christmas. What should our response be to the birth of this newborn child, this king of kings, this savior? Well, if we look in this passage, we see first off, there's three groups of people that are here at this birth, this particular part of the story. There's these three groups of people. The very first and most obvious group that we see are these fellows that we call the wise men. We've, we've called them the wise men for years. We've, we've named them the three kings. We put them on, on a Christmas cards. Somehow we even stick them in the manger scene, as we'll see a little later. It's kind of added in for no apparent reason. But anyhow, we, we talk about these kings, these wise men that came. Yes, those things are part of what they were, wise men. And, and yes, I guess in a sense, they were kings. But that's not really who they were. Um, for see, they were neither wise nor really kings of anything. See, the word that's translated there as wise men in our particular uh, New Testament, in our English version, is the, the Greek word megos, which is, is more aptly translated probably magi. It's actually an untranslatable word. It's just like taking the name Herod and trying to translate it into English. If you translated the word Herod into English, what would it be? Herod. <laughs> Have you ever noticed when foreign countries, you know, the Spanish, for instance, or those folks who speak Spanish, when they are talking Spanish and they come to a proper name, they say the proper name just like we do. It's untranslatable. Their title really is Magi, or Magos is the way it was pronounced then. So Magi. Who are these Magi? These Magi are a very powerful group of men. They're not just these ordinary little kings or this little group of folks that travel around visiting people. It's a very powerful group of fellows. We actually see them mentioned, if you don't mind turning back in your Bible with me, to the book of Daniel. Back to the uh, book of Daniel. It's kind of interesting that we see him in the book of Daniel. You know the story of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is one of those that, uh, that we see different things happening around this, uh, this King Nebuchadnezzar. He actually winds up getting a new name, Belshazzar, and, and he winds up with three friends, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and so you see all this in these stories. But back in Daniel, we see these uh, magi mentioned. And it, it kind of gives you a sense of their power. Look in Daniel chapter 5. If you're having trouble finding Daniel, it's only about five books, or, or I guess a little more than that, maybe about ten books back into the Old Testament. It's before you get to Psalms. If you get there, you've gone too far. If you happen to read Jeremiah, just turn back to the right a few pages. But chapter 5 of the book of Daniel, uh, let's just look at verse 11 to make it short. In verse 11, it says this of chapter 5. There is a man in your kingdom. Now, this is, this is the queen speaking. This is the queen speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. She's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar because there's been this issue. We know the issue, if you read forward, is that suddenly on this wall there appeared some kind of writing at a feast. Remember the story? It was a little disconcerting that you gather with your friends in a freshly painted room and you're hanging out with them and suddenly somebody with a big finger out of nowhere writes on your wall. You'd want to know what it means. They're having a little difficulty here. The queen steps up and says this to the king, says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. Notice that spirit should be in capital letters in your Bible as well as holy God. Gives you a sense of who Daniel believed in. It says, And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom 
of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. So who does it say he was made chief of? Chief of these magicians. Guess where we get the word magician from? Magi. We loosely translate that magi. See, Daniel was made part of this group of the magi. That's kind of interesting because these magi were actually a group that, um, that was held, uh, passed down through lineage. It was actually, they were, they were part of this particular tribe. But Daniel was made a part of this because of the gifts that he had been given and his ability to interpret things for, these, uh, for the kings. He happened to be there at uh, Belshazzar's feast, and the queen pointed out this to him, that Nebuchadnezzar had put into play this, this gentleman that he had put ahead over all these soothsayers. So it gives us some idea of what these magi did. It says they were magicians. We see them in different places doing things to prove who God is and different things. They were astrologers, which kind of ties in with our story, which means they, they were able to look at the stars and determine certain things. Times of the year, maybe answers to questions. They, in that time, astrology and astronomy were strongly linked together, though we separate those today. So they used the stars to tell things. It talks about this particular group of people, the Chaldeans, but it also says they were soothsayers. They were able to tell the king answers to dreams and things that, that perplexed him. They were actually part of the king's court. See, they weren't just a group of fellows that were called. They were part of the court. What did it mean to be part of the king's court? It means you were royalty, so to speak. It was like being on the cabinet of the president. You weren't just someone they called in as an advisor. You were part of the team. So there was this group that was part of the, the team. I find it kind of interesting that even though Daniel was a part of that, it says that he stayed full of the spirit of the holy God. It's interesting. That ties into where we see the Magi in Matthew. Remember that statement. See, they were more than just this group. They were counselors to the king. They studied the stars. They spent time learning. They were very intelligent men, and that's why we give them this title of, of wise men. But there was another characteristic of them that was a little disconcerting. They were actually pagans. They were from a pagan group. They were actually from the Medes and the Persian. They were from the Medo-Persian empires where they came from. They were actually part of this pagan society. Note that as we move back to Matthew in a few minutes. See, they were part of this pagan society, but they had been in the presence of this chief of the Magi's who was a godly man. And we're going to see that reflection in their life in a few minutes. So you see this group that was the wise men or the magi that were there. The second group we see in Matthew, or the second person that we see there, is this man called Herod. Herod, he was the king. We actually know him in, in secular literature as Herod the Great. Herod the Great. There's a reason Herod captured a lot of things. He, he first was put in place as just king over this particular little Galilean area. His father was king over other parts. And, and whenever they came from the east to invade the area he was in, he ran to Rome and said, we're being invaded, I need help with this. And because he convinced Rome that he knew the area, he knew the people, he'd be able to defend this particular region, Rome made him king over 
the Jews. It's interesting they give him that title, king over the Jews. So he wound up back in Jerusalem, reigning over this whole territory. So there was this king of the Jews, and, and he had taken over this whole Jerusalem area by force because Rome had given him this army to defend this region. So we have these wise men coming, these wise men that have been called the maker of kings. And here we have this fellow on the scene that is Herod, who is king of the Jews. What type of person was this Herod? <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Herod ruled out of what I would call a place of insecurity. He thought everybody was out to get him. You ever met anybody like that? They were constantly looking over their shoulder. Somebody talking on the other side of the room, they assumed it was about them. You know, every message they read on Facebook was pointed at them. You know, every time somebody texted them and they used capital letters, they thought the person was mad at them. You know, that type of person, that was, that was Herod. Matter of fact, he was so insecure, he had his wife killed. Figured she was trying to take over the throne just to make sure his message got through. He had his brother-in-law killed too. He was a priest, by the way. Didn't stop there. Killed his mother-in-law. Said, I know killing my brother-in-law and my wife is probably going to make my mother-in-law mad. We better get her out of the scene too. He didn't stop there. He actually killed three of his own sons because he was afraid that they would take over his throne. Get a picture of this man? King of the Jews? <laughs> King of Israel? Herod, this murderer. See, he ruled the kingdom in fear. How do we know that? Because in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Herod the king was troubled, and it says all Jerusalem with him. Why were the, all of Jerusalem troubled? If he got upset enough to kill his family, thinking they might take over his throne, what was he going to do when he heard there's a new king of the Jews? Sure, all Jerusalem was a little disconcerted, because until he found that king that would take over, murder would be on his mind. So he was very upset. He was very troubled. We also see a third group of folks there, and it's these chief priests because it says in verse 4 and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born now it's interesting this group of chief priests the first the the chiefest of the chief priests number one chief priest would have been uh, the high priest how do we know that well the chief priests were of the Sadducees each year there was this one particular high priest whose job was to enter into the holy of holies to do the things in the temple that only the high priest could do the number one man in that list would have been referred to as the high priest. The second person in that list would have been the second chief priest uh, who actually had a name, a title. It was captain of the temple. So you have this chief priest, this head honcho, that would have been handling the, the yearly sacrifices, the things internally of the temple, the worship in the temple, the responsibility for all that. And then you have this captain of the temple who actually had a captain of the temple's police. Believe it or not, the Romans had given them police to guard this temple. He was in charge of this temple police. He was in control of that. He had the authority actually to arrest and imprison people. So see the ones that were first called to the side of this Herod? You see, the rest of those chief priests would have just been mere temple priests. Those temple priests actually didn't stay there, didn't live there year-round. They actually had places they lived out within the countryside and were priests. But for two weeks out of the year, they came at individual times to serve in the temple. And they were the chief priest or the temple priest at that particular couple of weeks. And they came to serve. And So the ones that were gathered there, he pulled to himself. He pulled to himself to inquire of them. 
about this king of the Jews. But look, there was also another group with those chief priests. It says there were these scribes. Well, if the chief priests were the Sadducees, who would you assume the scribes to be? The Pharisees. So we have these guys that handled the worship and protected the worship in the temple. Now he calls these Pharisees along with him. What did the Pharisees do? We call the Pharisees the legalists. They were very legalistic in their approach to God. They were pretty much the lawyers of the temple. If there was a law that God had put into place, they put in several other laws to make sure that the first law wasn't broken. They were the ones that first stood up and said, you didn't do this right because the law says. They were the ones that said you should do certain things every time you come into the temple and you should worship in a certain manner and you should say certain things. And they set up all the legal ramifications for what we today term religion. They were the head of the religious organization. So we have the ones that were head over worship. We have the ones that were head over the religious organization. And those were brought in. So we see those three groups of people that were there in this story. Each of those three different groups of people had three different reactions. So the second thing I want to look at is the reaction to the birth by these three groups. The wise men. What was their reaction to the birth of this baby? What was their reaction Well, it tells us in verse 1, it says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. What did I tell you anytime you see the word behold show up in Scripture? Behold means wow. That's the old-fashioned way of saying wow or whoo, something big is about to happen. So he says, wow, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. How far was it from the east to Jerusalem? No idea. It must have been a right good ways, though, because if you read further in the story, you're going to find out. Herod tried to find out when the baby was born so he could figure out about how old this baby was. And when he finally figured out, kind of through what he had learned about the age, it wound up being about two, if you remember. We'll see later in the story why, because he does something to everybody two and under in this story. So apparently, they traveled a right good ways. Now, remember what I told you about them? They were pagans. They didn't believe in God. Yet they traveled, possibly years, to come see this baby. It says they traveled far from the east to Jerusalem. And they came with one purpose. Their reaction to this birth wasn't that there was this neat baby born. But to them, there was this baby born that was called King of the Jews. I find it interesting that they come to talk to the man who now held the title of king of the Jews to let him know there was a new king in town. (laughs) They traveled far and wide to see the king of the Jews. They were neither Jewish or desired a king. (laughs) Why would they have traveled that far? You see, they were coming from that pagan society. They were actually Gentiles, Yet somehow they knew about this Jesus. How? It's a little fellow called Daniel. See, Daniel was put in place by God hundreds of years before in this group of men that came from a lineage. It was much like the Levites were the priest for Israel, and it was by birth. So was the Magi by birth. Yet here inserted into this was this guy named Daniel. That even the queen said, had the spirit of a holy God within him. How do you think the Magi came to know there would be this special baby that was called King of the Jews 
that would be born in a place called Bethlehem. How do you think? It's not a coincidence. They didn't read it in the newspaper. God put the message right in front of them and a fellow named Daniel. But you say, well, these guys weren't alive when Daniel was there. No. But Daniel's message was so convincing. He so loved God that it just flowed out of him in such a way that the tradition of Daniel was passed down from generation through generation through this family of the Magi. He so believed in this story and told it to so many people. Lived it before them, if you remember. When all the rest were made to eat from the king's table, he said, no, let us eat what we should eat so that we won't be against our God. And I promise you that God will keep us, keep us healthy. Do you remember the story? And what happened? He did exactly, God did exactly what Daniel told them. That if you let us eat what we desire to eat, not from this king's table, will be healthier than the rest. And he was. Do you remember he also had this other story where he was part of, he wasn't really in, but this thing called the fiery furnace. Do you remember his three friends in the fiery furnace? Finally, after the king looked in and saw four, he finally just told us, look, the three of you guys come on out. i got to know who that fourth guy is. But then Daniel was directly involved in another story that we read about in Daniel that showed the providence of his God and the sovereignty of his God. And it dealt with this big old kitty cat and a little thing called a lion's den. Do you remember the story? Remember the story they threw Daniel in to be killed, and what did they find? Daniel laid on him like a rug, taking a nap. You see, the whole group knew about God because of one guy, Daniel. His story was so strong, so convincing. He so loved God, and he shared it in such a way that that story had been passed down from generation to generation through these magi. When they saw this star they couldn't explain, they knew what that star meant. It was that God had come to earth, and they had learned that through Daniel. What an amazing thing. It says they had seen this star in the east, but it doesn't say they just saw a star. It says they saw his star. See, they had been studying stars for all of the generations that the Magi had been on the earth. And suddenly they see one star, and they recognize that as his star. I think it's proof positive that what the star was here, as well as that glory that showed up when the angels were announcing to the shepherds, the star wasn't Jupiter, it wasn't the North Star, it wasn't any of that. It was the glory of God shining forth from the heavens signifying that something special was happening. Something special was happening. That the glory that was in heaven was going to be contained in the body of a baby born in Bethlehem. And when these guys looked up, they saw his star. And they said, interestingly enough, that the star was coming from the east. What happens in the east every morning? The sun comes up. The sun rises from the east. I find it interesting because what they were really saying is they saw the sign of the dawning of his glory. They saw the sign of the dawning of his glory coming from the east. They knew there was something new and special happening. But you know there was another reaction there besides those wise men that desired to see the Savior. There was this Herod. I told you this Herod was very troubled. That's the understatement of the century because he was getting up in years. He'd, always, he'd already murdered all those he thought were going to try to take over his throne. And now here out of nowhere show up these group of guys that are known as kingmakers. 
that are, are in the court of the king are advisors to the highest of the highest, and they show up at his place and say, Look, uh, Mr. King of the Jews, we're here to find where the new one has been born. Can you imagine Herod's reaction? Herod flipped his lid. I could just imagine. He called in those chief priests and the scribes. And I find it interesting that the first place he went was to the church. Did you find it interesting? This guy that was a pagan that was killing people just because he thought he was going to lose his throne turns to the religious leaders to find out about this king of the Jews. Why? Because they were Jewish. Would have been one good reason. He was not. He was an Edomite. But he turned to them and wanted to know about this king of the Jews. When he couldn't get an answer there that satisfied him, it says he secretly met with the wise men in verse 7. He says, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. So he wanted to know one thing. If there is going to be this king of the Jews, I want to know when he's going to be born. Can you see his mind working? Can you see it? He says, I've already killed the ones that I thought were here. All I've got to do is lay my hands on this baby. I can fix this right off the bat. He wanted to know what time. Matter of fact, when they didn't know what time, what did he tell them? In verse 8, he says, Go and search carefully for this young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I, that I may come and worship him also. He tells him, he says, Go and search. Go and find. And hey, your advisors to the king, come back and let me know. I'd love to go see him too. He was so desperate to know who this king was that he would lie to these kingly advisors to get them to do his bidding to send them out. You know, the next group that we see responding there is that group that is the chief priests and the scribes. I find it interesting that we saw the Magi came and they were responding to this star, this voice of God, so to speak. We see Herod responding or, or reacting to their message, and he reacts in a way that he wants to eliminate this baby. But then we see these chief priests and scribes. These guys who knew the law, their job was to study the, the books of the law, to study the written text, to, to understand about God. And, and when they turn, when Herod turns to them, it says he inquires of them, what do they say? It's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea or Judah. It's going to be born in this Bethlehem. They even back it up with Scripture. Verse 6 is nothing but a quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They quote and say, Hey, it's going to be born in Bethlehem in this land of Judah, and it's the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you is going to come this ruler who will shepherd my people. But notice their reaction is not to go, Hmm. Let's go see this. They just dump out this information they had learned. They just respond by giving in this information. This information they had gained over some 700 years. For 700 years earlier, Micah wrote that. 700 years have been the tradition. 700 years they've been waiting for a Messiah. A group of wise men... Kings, three kings, whatever we want to call them. This magi shows up to say he's going to be born. You've been waiting 700 years, and your response is to say, some guy 700 years ago wrote he'd be born in Bethlehem. That's your response? That's your reaction? I find it interesting that they find little importance in what the Word of God said about this birth of a king. 
So we see the groups that were there at the birth. We see their reaction to the announcement that we would be born. But what's their actual response to this baby? Since we left off with the chief priests and scribes at their reaction, let's look at their response. Their response was one I would call of indifference. Indifference. It's the response of a lot of people in our church today. Indifference. See, they were very involved in the church. They spent a whole lot of time studying. Obviously, they knew the scripture. That's what they recited. They knew that there would be a Messiah. For all the years that they had been in this priestly duty, they had taught this. They had heard this. They had learned about this Messiah. They knew about Jesus. Their problem was they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe this Messiah would be a baby in a manger. They believed this Messiah would show up with an army to conquer, much like Herod the Great had Jerusalem. They didn't believe that God would place this baby in a manger, even though the scriptures that they quoted said that. It's a place of indifference that they were at. See, it's not enough to know about Jesus. All the knowledge in the world about Jesus doesn't make him your Savior. Being able to quote scripture frontwards and backwards and reading the Bible through ten times a year won't change your destiny. Sitting on a church pew every Sunday listening to me will waste an hour of your time. Attending every church function we ever had will make you fat. I'm proof of that. But it won't change your future. See, they were extremely indifferent to this Jesus. It's not good enough to know Jesus. The devil knows Jesus. Knowledge of Jesus, it won't save you. Church attendance, it won't save you. Church membership, it won't save you. Being baptized will not save you. Indifference to the message of the Savior destines you to a place called hell. Those chief priests and scribes were indifferent to this baby Jesus. That was their response. What was Herod's response? Herod's response was flat out one of hatred. That was Herod's response. You see, that indifferent nature of the priests and the scribes is the response of many who call themselves church members, who put their name on a roll and sit in a place like this. Herod's response is the response of those who want nothing to do with this church or our God. His response was hatred. He knew little of the religious things. He didn't know much about the Messiah. That's why he called for the church leaders to describe to him what this baby, this king of the Jews, was. Everything that he knew religiously about them came from those advisors. The only thing he knew about this king of the Jews is that he was a threat. And he was a threat to all that he had. All of his things, all of his power, all of his life. And you know, Herod was scared. You know what he was scared about? He was scared that things would change. He was scared that something would be different in his life and that he would lose control over all of these things. He had absolutely no interest in this baby. Keep in mind, from where he sat in Jerusalem to the place where the baby was born in Bethlehem was less than six miles. 
Here come the wise men who traveled possibly two years to see this baby. Yet he wouldn't go six miles to see this baby. When the wise man didn't return, it said that he was extremely irate. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, it says, And Herod, when he saw that his kings deceived, that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. If you're going to read that story this afternoon when you go home, you're going to realize he designed this scheme to get rid of this baby anyway. He had gotten enough information out of them to get some type of semblance of a time frame of when they first saw this star. And in his mind, he deduced when they saw the star, the baby must have been born. So to eliminate the baby, I eliminate everybody from that date to now. And therefore, the baby will be gone. So he took all the male children, two years and under, and slaughtered them. Slaughtered them. All because of this Jesus. He so hated God that he acted like the devil. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. See, do not yield the lordship of your life to the kings of kings is hatred of God. To say you're a Christian, to put your name on a roll, yet not turn over the lordship of your life because you want to keep things under your control and you want the things that you've got, you want them your way and you want everything done your way, to not turn that over to God and let him be the Lord is to make him not king of your life at all. See, he cannot be the Savior unless he is also the Lord. There is no separating those two things. Herod wanted to be in control. See, you can't be a Christian and not have Christ as your king. You can't live all week like God doesn't exist, yet expect him to jump in when there's a problem in your life and fix it. See, either you love God and you keep his word, or you don't keep his word and you hate him. It's a strong statement. But it's one that Jesus himself made in Matthew chapter 22. When he was asked, when the Pharisees came up to him in Matthew 22, and they said in verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, said this, asking him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the first and great commandment. And the second is, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hinge all the law. So what are you to do if you love Jesus? You are to keep His commandments. What does His commandment say? When asked, the greatest of those commandments is word. He said, You love God with everything that you are. Everything that you are. And it should flow out of you to love your neighbors greater than you love yourself. He says the proof in the pudding of who your Lord is, is the life you live in the world that you live in now. Your life can only be different if it's in total submission to a loving God and he's Lord of your life. That should make the world you live in different. You know, the wise men, in some crazy sense, even as pagans, did that. Let's look at their response very quickly. Says they traveled a great distance, probably with much hardship over many different um, regions, many different climates, all kinds of problems, I'm sure, went along with that. And they did it for one reason, it said in verse 2, and it was to worship him. What comes to my mind is why would a pagan group want to come worship this king of the Jews? Why would they travel this great distance? See, them being king, or him being king of the Jews didn't affect them being a Gentile. Yet they recognized the significance of a king because they were in the king's court. They knew the stories from Daniel. They had seen 
what it meant to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body. They had seen it lived out in this young man and this group of pagans that he was stuck in the middle of. They saw how God responded to those that truly followed him and were under the lordship. They saw that through Daniel. They said there would be born this king of the Jews, and they sought this king, it says, with great joy in verse 9. When they had heard the, the king, they departed, and behold, there's that word again, wow! The star which they had seen in the east, it went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And it says, when they saw this star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. I find it interesting the way they approached the worship of this king. I would love to say it's the way we approach worship of God every week when we come into this place. Wouldn't you like to know that every time you looked at this place and you thought about Sunday morning, you rejoiced and you did it with exceeding great joy? Rejoiced with exceeding great joy. See, they weren't just happy. They weren't just excited. They rejoiced with this exceeding great joy. They were cheerful in the highest degree with the loudest delight is the way I like to put it. Cheerful to the highest degree with the loudest delight. They were ecstatic at this opportunity to see the king of kings. They didn't go quietly and solemnly like we think about them on the back of some camel riding along all quietly. They went with a heart of gladness. And that heart of gladness spilled out of their mouths. And they left Jerusalem rejoicing. There's nothing more disconcerting to a pastor to stand in a pulpit and look at a bunch of folks that look like they stopped by the lemon tree on the way into church service in the morning. We should be the happiest group that ever hit the face of the earth. Why? The king of the Jews has been born. We've been grafted into that tree of the Jews, so he's our king. If you can't get happy about that, maybe you deserve something other than heaven. Heaven will not be a place that we sit around on pews solemnly meditating our toes. Heaven will be a place that we stand in the presence of our Savior and we sing glory, glory, glory all day long. Heaven is not a place that we sit soaking sour. It's a place that we worship. And these wise men, these magi, once they saw this star and realized they were about to see the King of Kings, all worship broke out. The band struck up a chord. There wasn't just three of these guys, by the way, riding along on camels. When the Magi traveled, they traveled with a full entourage made up of guards, soldiers, and other worshipers in this particular case. I can imagine the entire band broke out. They fired up the drums and the guitars and whatever they had, and they were praising this God. See, when they left, they were rejoicing, they were ecstatic. But when they arrived, it says in verse 11, and when they come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary and his mother. And look at their response. It says they fell down and worshipped him. When's the last time you were so grateful to be in the presence of the Savior that you fell on your face and worshipped him? Amen. These guys didn't even know who he was, but their response to the sight of the king of the Jews was to fall prostrate on the ground at his feet. We're so proud, we're scared to get out of a pew and walk to an altar and ask for forgiveness for our sins. What are you going to do when you stand at the feet of Jesus? Are you going to stand there proud like you're right? I don't think so. 
Because the word tells us that the very sound of his name, that every knee shall bow, every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. That's you too, church. You may sit there today and you may not want to show your emotions for your God. You may want to sit there and say, I don't want anybody to think there's something wrong in my life, so I'm going to hold on to this pew. And when I get back in my closet, I'll tell Jesus my problems. He'll fix it there. Try that when you're standing in the face of Jesus. When they saw Jesus, they fell prostrate before him and they worshiped. You know what's missing in our church? Being prostrated at the feet of Jesus and worship. You want to change the world? Worship Jesus. With all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your body. Don't worry about the world thinks, worry about what your God thinks. They worshiped him one other way very quickly. They presented gifts to him. There was three gifts that they brought him. That's how we get the three men on the wise, or three wise men on the cards that we sent out at Christmas time. There was three particular gifts, and very quickly we'll talk about these gifts. There was this gold, it was a precious metal. It's a precious metal of great cost. It was a gift fitting for the value of a king. And what it really represented was his royalty. His royalty as a king. For us, this gold represents our heart. See, there's nothing more valuable to us or to our God than our heart. Both our physical heart is very valuable to us in the life of our body. But our spiritual heart is very valuable to us for our life for eternity. See, when they bowed at his feet, they basically gave him, gave him their heart. What does God want you to do today? He wants you to worship him by giving him your heart, that most precious, expensive thing that you have. But they also opened this box of frankincense, and that frankincense is a very costly perfume. It was used in the worship in the temple, and it represented his deity because it was tied to that temple. You see, sometimes it was used in weddings, sometimes it was used in royalty, and as a matter of fact, I think one day we'll find out it was used to anoint Jesus' body at his burial so that it would smell good. This frankincense for us represents our prayer and our worship of God because he is God. See, we are to come before God praising and worshiping him. And the third thing they opened was the myrrh. It was just a common perfume, nothing costly. Nothing of great significance. It was used very often, mentioned very often throughout the Bible. It was often mixed with other spices for preparing the body for burial, which I find very interesting. And what it represented in the gift to Jesus was his humanity. His humanity. It was sometimes mixed with wine, and it was used as an anesthetic. Whenever you look at Mark, matter of fact, he makes a point of saying that's what was mixed together and handed to Jesus on the cross, and he refused. This myrrh, what does this myrrh represent for us? It's the giving of our lives to the lordship of this king, Jesus. See, the natural response to a king is submission on our part. Natural response to a king is is to fall under his sovereign rule. So my question today is this to you. <clears throat> What's your response to this newborn king? We've heard this story. We've sat in churches all of our lives, some of us. We've heard this Jesus preached. We've seen plays about Christmas. We've seen Easter 
cantatas and plays done and we've asked him to fix things in our life we've asked him to bless our food when we pray we quite frankly we treat him like a slot machine most times but what is your response personally to this king have you given him your heart does it show up in your life do you praise and worship him for who he is and for what he's done do you follow his feet with tears flowing from your eyes because you can't even express your thankfulness for what he's done. Is it a Lord of your life? Does he truly control everything? Because if he's not Lord of everything, he's Lord of nothing. If not, today you can make the correct response to that king. And you can do it by giving your heart and life to Him as your Lord and your Savior. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.